0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Brex drops tens of thousands of small business customers. The UK plans to tighten buy now, pay later rules. And Internet Explorer, rest in peace. All this and much, much more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word about some of the things that we're cooking up here at 11FS.
1: How will three unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance, unpacking tokens, stable coins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11FS.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready.
0: So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series, and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome to episode 640 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Brewer and I'm joined on this weekly Fintech Insider news by my 11FS colleague, Sim Ray. How are you doing, Sim?
2: Yeah, doing well. Doing well, thank you. How are you? Uh,
0: busy, really busy. You're living the high life down in Dubai these days. So like <laughs> uh, I think last time me and you did a podcast together, you were uh, you were living in Canary Wharf in London. Now look at you. How's things?
2: <laughs> it's good. You know, I actually reached the 50s 50s here the other day, so it's quite hot, but manageable
0: manageable i i feel no sympathy for you at all my my shoes are still wet from walking in and getting soaked in london so uh yeah you get get nothing but uh, but ang- angry emojis on uh, on slack from me on that one but uh uh, busy, busy week with all the, the, the fun things you've been up to down there, but I'm sure we'll get to, to talk about that publicly uh, uh, in a little bit foreshadowy, foreshadowy, foreshadowy. As always, we are joined by some super-duper awesome guests making a welcome return to FinTech Insider. We have Ron Shevlin, who is the Chief Research Officer at Cornerstone Advisors. Welcome back to the show, Ron. How's it going? Doing great, David. Thanks a lot for having me back. Yeah, no worries. Talk- I mean, for anybody, who doesn't, for anybody who doesn't know Ron who listens to Fintech Insider, what are you doing with your life first and foremost? But, but Ron, tell us a little bit more about Cornerstone Advisors and the Snark Tank as well.
3: Yeah, so there's two things that I'm doing these days, David, I'm for the Cornerstone. I do a lot of commission research on fintech and banking trends. Uh, and you know that well coming out of the analyst world. That's what I came out of as well. Uh, And on the other side, writing a lot on a weekly basis to the Fintech snark Tank, my blog on Forbes.
0: It's very, very good. For anybody who wants to check that out, Ron, where's the the best place to head to 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 check out the Forbes stuff?
3: Uh, The Fintech section, uh, in the money section on Forbes site, www.forbes.com.
0: Very, very good. When you, we'll plug that again later on in terms of, uh, you definitely need to check it out. There's some great stuff in there. Uh, and making a FinTech Insider debut today, we have Tiger Balachu, who is the CEO over at Byte. Welcome to the show, how are you doing? Uh,
4: it's great to be here, David. Uh,
0: and for anybody who doesn't know uh, about your company, tell us a little bit more.
4: Yeah, like, Byte is the only super-powered corporate card with built-in installments, tailored to early-stage and high-growth startups in the UK. And our corporate card has up to 20x higher credit limits than the traditional banks. You can do installments on card purchases as well as invoice payments up to 12 months.
0: Very, very cool. Uh, very relevant to some of the things we're going to be coming to a little bit later on as well. So I will uh, be thrown to you very frequently. And, and by last but no means least, we have another debut on FinTech Insider News. Douglas Saltis, who is the editor and chief over at BetaKit. Welcome to the show, Douglas. How are you doing?
1: Uh I told you before we started recording, I won't lie to your listeners, I am hungover, I am barely surviving collision. I'm doing my best for you today.
0: Well, keep it together for an hour or so, and then we'll be fine. But uh, do you know what, the, the great thing is, is um, our editors are phenomenal. They've made me sound smart for at least 400 episodes, so uh, they'll they'll get you through this. They'll be fine. I have complete faith. <laughs> um, for anybody who doesn't know, tell us a little bit more about Betakip.
1: Yeah, I would say that uh, BetaKit is pretty much Canada's Tech Crunch. We cover uh, Canadian startups and tech innovation, Canadian tech, and tech from a Canadian perspective, and uh, we're deeply, deeply embedded in Canadian fintech, which I think is why I'm here today. Um, but uh, always happy to meet other people interested in fintech uh, around the world. And, and actually, the the Canadian
0: market is really. Kicking off in a big way, isn't it? In terms of all of the different things that are happening in the space, I know we're foreshadowing some of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later on. But, uh, but it was it was quiet for a while, and then it's got it's got really hot. So uh, we'll we'll definitely be coming to you in uh, in many of the the guises as we as we go on, and I imagine many times in the future as well. So, all right, we better get on with the news because there are there is a lot of it to get through in the the next hour or so. So uh, if we jump to the first story, which is one that was covered over. I mean, lots of different places, but we we picked it up over on CNBC. Brex drops tens of thousands of small business customers as Silicon Valley adjusts to the new reality. Brex, the Silicon Valley lender to startups, is dropping tens of thousands of small business customers to focus on bigger venture-backed clients. Brex sent an email to tens of thousands of SMBs last Thursday, alerting them to their accounts being closed in two months due to as they said, a change in how we determine account eligibility. The company said customers will need to proactively close their accounts, withdraw any funds and provide updated bank instructions to vendors and any other payment receipts before the 15th of August. After that date, they will lose account access. Henrik, uh, Dubras, definitely. I'm not. It's not a good day for me with pronouncing names, is it? Uh, Brex co-founder told CNBC that they made the decision in December as their startup customers became increasingly demanding, which is an interesting way of putting it. Brex told Axios, this is an incredibly difficult decision for the team and the founders, but we believe small businesses deserve a partner that is entirely focused on them. What do you reckon, Sim? This sounds a little bit like it's not you, it's us in like a kind of a weird breakup way. But what do you think? Is this, um, is this Brex just getting to a point where actually they've got to prioritize the most profitable customers in that sense? And it makes good sense? Or, you know, is some of the, the anger that we're sort of seeing a little bit on Twitter of, you know, leaving behind uh, really the people who've made them a successful business in the first place?
2: Yeah. To be honest, I echo that sentiment about, I'm kind of getting the vibe. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> it definitely, definitely sounds like that. I'm sure they have their reasons, but I don't know. It's kind of sad a bit, you know, they have their core focus offering for these customers and they've had that since they they launched. So it's kind of like, okay, we we did we what we had to do and now we need to move on from it. We kind of got what we needed and now we have to move on from it. I'm sure it's not like that, but is anyone else getting the kind of same vibe
0: from that it's definitely breakup vibes it really is definitely breakup vibes rom what do you think is this a sort of a maturing of the market to find you know the profitable parts of the space i mean it's something that's thrown at fintech a lot it's like yeah but you're not profitable so is is this them just responding to that market
3: Uh, i think that's a strong part of it david but and i'd love to hear tiger's uh view because he focuses a lot on small business but my take is that focusing on the small business market is like saying yeah, I'm going to start a business, and I'm going to serve humans. It's too broad a segment. There are, you know, small business is not a segment. Uh, there's too many vertical markets within the, that that segment. Uh, not to mention, the, you know, the needs of a a one man solo shop is a whole lot different than a company with a hundred people or even fifty people. So the idea that you know, you're going to serve small businesses. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if Brex looked at their customer base and said, this is all over the map. We can't serve it. There are so many different needs. And it's just simply, you know, too many unprofitable customers coming to us looking for these needs. So I I think in a lot of sense they may be ticking off a lot of their customer base, but I think in the end they're probably making a pretty smart decision to, focus in on where the, a profitable segment and a more more narrowly defined and properly defined segment of the market is.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really fair point. The SMBs are, you know, those one-man, one-woman bands, businesses. It's, what, 97 or 98% of the, the SMB market. You know, it's, it's massive, but actually, they're not particularly long-living in terms of those businesses or potentially profitable in that sense. But, Tiger, what do you think? I mean, you're a, a business who supports... SMBs, SMEs in that that broad sense. Um, do you think this is a sort of a, a sensible step in terms of what they're doing, or or do you think this sort of uh, misses a beat?
4: David, I understand their reasons, but the anger is justified. Like small businesses drove their success, and now they are be- being completely abandoned. I would have liked to see have like Brex act a bit more inclusively, but perhaps maybe segmenting its offering so that it could still service the core business needs of small businesses because as you told like small businesses are the lifeblood of any economy yet they are they are the ones most neglected by b2b financial service providers that's what i think
0: yeah and it's it's interesting isn't it it's um, to to sort of step away from the customers that have sort of you've grown as a business with it's uh, it must have been a very difficult decision for them to make as well
4: Exactly. But like the it's, it's like neglected by B2B financial service providers mainly because providers don't understand the SME risk profile or operational costs are too high. Like it's our problem to solve, not theirs to suffer through. That's what I believe. And that's what we are trying to do at D as well.
0: Yeah. I mean that's interesting, isn't it? Because usually that uh, that point that you make there about you know, large operational cost, you know, that's a uh, you know that's a big company problem, isn't it? Not a not a startup problem. You know, so actually, you know, I can always understand why you know big bank X can't serve that space because of. X billion dollars it takes to sort of keep the lights on from an IT perspective. But at the point where startups are moving away, well, I say startup, brexit is definitely in that scale-up territory. But, you know, scale up start to move away from the lower end of that market as well, then that's a an interesting place to be. I mean, Douglas, what do you, what do you think? Is this a, a sort of a sign of things to come in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the sort of maturing of the market and what, what we're doing? Or uh, do you think this is, I mean, even potentially a, in the downturn that is inevitable when it comes to the... The, the economic environment that we're in? Is this just people getting ahead of the storm?
1: Well, putting aside whether or not this is a sign of broader market conditions, I hope that the Brexit behavior is not a sign of things to come because I actually think this is a black mark on all of fintech. Um, imagine your <laughs> imagine your incumbent bank treating you the way that Brexit is currently treating their customers. Uh, I think moving to a different market consideration is one thing, but giving kind of two months notice, sending the breakup letter and kicking them off is another. Um, Every fintech startup that we talk to in in Canada, uh, which is a heavily gated market, uh, says that their biggest consideration is trust. It's the biggest barrier to customer acquisition because it's much easier to just go with the incumbent. They've been building trusted brands for hundreds of years. To see a scale-up treat their customers this way in pursuit of... Revenues to back up what they've raised on, I think, makes it less likely for small business, any customer base, to look to a uh, fintech offering compared to an incoming competitor. So it's it's a, it's a definitely it's them not their customers scenario, and uh, I think incredibly poorly handled. Um, be- beyond whatever market conditions,
0: well, it's a, it's a really interesting point you make on the on the trust piece because I think that's. Um... You know, while while I'm not uh, I'm not sure I would agree that customers trust uh, financial services organisations in that sense. They definitely don't trust them to shut their accounts and disappear. Uh, so so there's a there's a, a sort of a baseline of expectation that and and, and do you know what I, I guess on in that sense the the regulatory side of things is actually something that I would be I'd be super interested to see what the backlash is in that sense from from the regulator because uh, you know I would have thought they would have had a a view on this in terms of actually just be the ability to for somebody to just sort of turn their back on a a big slice of the the market in that sense but uh, maybe that will be something that will kind of come out on this one as it uh, as it as it unfolds but again as you as you say Douglas the idea that um you know, this might actually damage the, the reputation of fintech much more broadly. I mean, Sim, what do you think in that? Is this a is this a black mark on the the industry as a whole? And, you know, does that trust element in terms of people being open to trying new things potentially take a bit of a hit?
2: I think it is. And I'm going to talk about fintech more broadly as well. So obviously, this is Brex treating its customers in such a way. But we've heard of other fintechs, you know, like Better.com firing its staff um, on the video call and in such a rude manner too. So... I think it's a black mark on fintech from whatever angle you're coming in at, and it's not a good sign.
3: Hey David, is the, uh, is the, is the uh, fintech press in the UK referring to this as a Brexit?
0: <laughs> no, we, we we talked about Brexit enough. We're uh, too soon. we talked out on that one. So uh, I think I think somebody bought the domain and everybody's moved on. But no, uh, but no, uh, that would be painful. So you know, we haven't talked about COVID or, or Brexit for a couple of a couple of weeks actually. So uh, it's uh, good to bring it back up in a slightly more jovial manner. Although not if you're an SME, I guess. All right, we're going to have to move on. Um, so, there was another story that that really sort of popped up, which, um, you know, between the lines in terms of where Buy Now Pay Later has been for, from an industry perspective is, a, in my mind, a, a good reaction that we're seeing here. Uh, it was picked up by a number of places, but the Financial Times was uh, was the one that we saw it um, most, most frequently. Uh, UK outlines plans to tighten Buy Now Pay Later rules. The UK government has announced plans to strengthen rules on Buy Now Pay Later services, improving protection for users of the short time credit product. The announcement on the back of a consultation which closed in January follows concerns being raised about buy now later model and consumer protection as a whole. Uh, this is particularly impactful as the cost of living crisis deepens. The government proposals will require lenders to carry out checks on consumers to ensure that they can actually afford to take out the loans. Seems like an obvious step. Uh, the plans will amend financial promotion rules also to ensure adverts are not misleading, which again seems like a pretty sensible step. Lenders will also need to be uh, approved by the FCA and borrowers will also be able to take a complaint to the financial services ombudsman, which uh, for anybody from an international perspective is essentially the referee from our perspective in the UK. Um, To uh, have a little bit of an understanding from an industry perspective, we reached out to Anthony Stephen, who is the CEO of Barclays Partner Finance, uh, who told us about their new research on Buy Now Pay Later debt
5: The recent surge in inflation and living costs has seen Buy Now Pay Later become even more popular. Members of the public who use BNPL are now paying off an average of 4.8 purchases each, almost twice as many as in February, and the average BNPL debt now stands at over 250 pounds a person. These trends are concerning because around a third of shoppers who use Buy Now Pay Later get into problem debt and their repayments become unmanageable. As most BNPL lending happens during the checkout process, retailers are a vital gatekeeper in consumer decisions about how they pay. In fact, our research shows that retailer support for fully regulated buy-now-pay-later products could save around 876,000 brits from getting into unmanageable debt this year. Encouragingly, the government has acknowledged the issues with unregulated BNPL and earlier this week announced it would publish a consultation on draft legislation towards the end of the year. However, while the industry waits, more consumers are being exposed to potential harm. Our message to retailers is therefore this, make sure you understand the credit products you are showcasing to customers at checkout and speak to your lending partners to demand more responsible practices to better protect your consumers from financial harm.
0: It's an interesting one, isn't it? Obviously, we've seen buy now pay later, you know, spread like a, a, a virus globally. I mean, even a little, Apple are getting into the the market in that sense, you know. So the the impact of buy now pay later is is really significant, isn't it? Globally, in terms of how people are are buying it, and and regulations just sort of catching up with that in that sense. It's um, Ron. It's it's quite an odd one, isn't it? That the market and products in the market in financial services is ahead of regulation rather they're being they're being sort of tried and tested I mean is, is buy now pay later like the only real product innovation that we've actually seen because of the need for regulation or is is it something sort of just filling between the gaps do you think
3: I, I think this whole thing is getting so blown out of proportion it's it's ridiculous first of all uh, if I've got my trans um, my currency translation right uh, 250 pounds uh in britain Britain is about three hundred dollars u.s um and let's put it this way in the scheme of things this is this is nothing um this is nothing what's what are these consumers credit card debt look like in the u.s you've got people with tens you know tens of thousands of dollars in debt and we're gonna make a big deal about three hundred dollars um this is this is kind of like ridiculous um I love how the government, you said the government positioned this as, you know, consumer protection. So basically what you're, they're really saying is we're going to stop you from buying things we think, you know, you can't afford to buy, which they probably can't afford to buy. But that's, look, this is, this is the economy. This is society. We buy things on credit. And, you know, it's, I think it's good to sort of look at this thing as simply another credit tool, which it, it has not been. Uh, and then sort of make those credit decisions in the context of the, the customer's broader capabilities instead of just kind of one-off things. But we're, I think we're kind of really blowing this out of proportion. Um, and I also think, you know, just from a, a, a practical perspective, I was really surprised to hear that the average is like four payments uh, because how many different payments can you really make on buy now, pay later, because there's no easy way to kind of track this. So I think that's kind of the bigger challenge for a lot of consumers. Um, in fact, a study that I conducted last year of, of U.S. consumers, of consumers who had done some sort of buy now, pay later purchase, about 40% said that they had been late on one payment, but two-thirds of that 40% said that the reason they were late was because they didn't weren't able to keep track of the payment, not because they couldn't make the payment. So I, I think a lot of this is getting blown out of out of proportion, David. I'd love to hear what the other folks think.
0: Yeah, I mean, taker what do you think in this sense? I mean, there's some, you know, recommendations to sort of bring buy now, pay later much more into the fray with with other lending in that sense. Um, what do you think? Do you think this is good measures, or do you uh, do you agree with Ron?
4: I'm not sure about the timing of it. Like, if it's too soon or like I don't know, too early or not. But. Uh, some rules should be tightened in the consumer space that's for should sure. even like bmpl even at zero percent interest rate is still dead and should be require all same consumer protection and the other side is the space is already crowded and very competitive like tons of unicorns are right now competing with each other in the uk and in my perspective, when I'm looking for the new regulations, I'm always looking for how does it affect the new entries. So the new entries are already blocked by the huge unicorns right now. The The, 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 the regulations are not going to be the entry barrier. Um, disruption has already happened. So I think now might be a good time to think about how to protect those consumers, because you have a couple of minutes to decide what you're going to do at the checkout point. So like some of the consumers are not understanding what they are signing into. That's what I believe right now.
0: Yeah, and, and that's, I guess, the worrying thing, isn't it, in this this change? You know, the, the measures around affordability checks, but also they therefore need to bring in much more controls around financial promotion in, in that sense. Because if people's credit history is essentially going to start getting a footprint or impacted by you know, uh, um, not really understanding what it is that they're entering into. That's not a. It's not a good place to be, is it? That'll affect much broader things than just can I buy these shoes or not, won't it? But I mean, Doug, Douglas, how how big is Buy Now Pay Later in the Canadian market?
1: Uh it's pretty. It's it's starting to become significant, right? So we have uh, PayBright here. They've already signed up with just under like six thousand different retailers. Uh, we have some other players in the market, although. Um, uh, I think New Zealand-based Zip has really um, diminished its presence in this market to focus on other regions. Um, from a regulatory perspective, we're still quite early. Like I, I, like all things, we follow the UK. I know the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada has been looking at Buy Now, Pay Later right now, but there's there's been no kind of judgments or guidelines here in any way. But I, I honestly have to say I completely disagree with uh, Ron. I think now is the perfect time to institute uh, something at at this stage, uh, because why wait until there's an additional debt problem (laughs) to try and uh, regulate against it? But um, the CBC, which is the rough Canadian equivalent to the BBC, and I know people on both sides of the pond are going to be upset about that description, has been uh, writing stories recently uh, around Apple's announcement that it was entering the market, uh, that how appealing this is to younger generations, either because (laughs) they're already in deep credit debt or they don't remember payday loans, and they're not familiar with the concept of being over leveraged. Um, imagine if by now pay later companies treated their customers the way that Brex is treating their customers and what kind of problem that would be. So I, I think uh, regulation around education, streamlining uh, payment processes, like uh, I bought my MacBook Pro, the new M1 chip through Paybrite just to try it out. And it was... It's sometimes annoying and sometimes incredibly painless to get it set up. Uh, streamlining consistency there, I think, is very helpful. But it, for me, it's the educational component for the target demographic of these people because, as someone who crashed his credit score in university because tuition might have needed to be covered on a credit card, I understand uh, how long that might take to build out of. I, th- I think this is a the perfect time to be creating kind of frameworks for best practices without impeding innovation.
0: Yeah, I, I say one thing that's you know without question is you know bipolar is is not going away is it in that sense but i guess w- why do we think it's been so successful because I, I guess there's lots of arguments of like you know when you stand back and look at the product i'm not sure it's necessarily product is it just the product is very close to uh, a problem you know, the, we've sort of said this on the show a number of times before. It's like PayPal, you know, the button was the innovation. It wasn't actually the product. It was the fact that I didn't have to find my wallet. I could just press that button to buy the thing. Is buy now, pay later when it's made so obviously an easy decision to make, particularly on zero interest, Tiger, as you as you, you know, you reference, then it's like, well, yeah, why would I not do that? Like it just seems like an obvious thing to, thing to do.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. In Canada specifically, there's a huge portion of the population that lives essentially paycheck to paycheck. They don't have uh, savings. And with various credit debt, like this is an easy way to fulfill purchase. But I think uh, generationally, it's also a society where they're not used to saving up money to purchase a thing. They want the thing now, uh, and the the ease of technology facilitating the ease of of, of getting the thing uh, makes a lot of sense. Like there's a reason why Apple is moving into this, and not just because Apple just really wants to become a bank uh, to leverage <laughs> uh, their global dominance. It's they've have years of experience uh, working with telecoms around the world in terms of financing options uh, for phones. Something that they had both first fought against carriers for, and then worked with them on, and then. Offered financing alternatives. This is a, a logical extension for them, based upon all the credit card data that they've been acquiring as they add more payment uh, and finance services. They know a lot about consumer purchasing behavior for certain types of consumer products, whether the technology or not. And I think this is just an extension beyond. But when when you start seeing like buy now, pay later for like Uber Eats deliveries, that's when it's too late, right? So let's let's get some frameworks in uh, right now. I don't know, man. Some of these
0: hamburgers in Shoreditch in London are really expensive. <laughs> like if we smooth those payments out, but uh, but yeah, no, it it, it is interesting. The th- delivery prices are rough right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what what do you think then, Ron? Is that uh, in terms of, you know, responding to, to Douglas's points there? Because it's, I mean, it is, there is a, you know, a, a thing to say, look, the market's the market and we should let everybody do whatever they want to do in that sense. But I guess in, in the responsibility from a regulators perspective to be that, that referee, in this sense, to to drive some some sanity into potentially people who might uh, might be trying to smooth their uh, their hamburger payments. Like, uh, where where do you see that responsibility really sitting? Should it all sit with the uh, if you're stupid enough to take out the money, it's your problem type thing? Or do you think the the regulator has a a certain responsibility in that that sense as well?
3: Well, I think the regulator has a responsibility to create a uh, like a level playing ground. I don't think it's the regulator's responsibility to be the nanny and tell people when they can or can't spend money or where they can or, or get into debt. Um, you know, it's a two sided coin. If you're dumb enough to spend the money you don't have, that's fine, especially, but if you're dumb enough to lend money to somebody, uh, who can't pay you back, that's your problem too. Uh, and that's why I say, you know, 300 pounds really, that's really going to put Barclays out of business. I don't think so. You know, now maybe if some of their, corporate, you know, commercial real estate loans go through, uh, you know, at, or fall flat at, you know, 25, 30 million dollar, uh, you know, 30 million pound levels, then sure, maybe that has a, a problem. So, you know, I think you have to recognize that this is a loan. And so therefore should, you know, play in um, from a regulatory perspective, be in line with that. But Douglas makes some really good points, though, about, you know, why this has become so popular. This is, I don't see it as an innovation. It's kind of been around. But what's, what is new is that this is more and more moving towards a pre-purchase selling tool than a post-purchase payment tool. And I've, I've been toying with writing an article called Don't Call Klarna a, a Buy Now, Pay Later Company because they're really creating an e-commerce ecosystem, like a PayPal, like a Square, that's what they're competing for. That's why Square, uh, acquires an Afterpay. That's why PayPal, after 10 years, is finally, you know, really pushing and pumping up, uh, Bill Me Later and, and their, um, buy now pay later offerings. It's a way of influencing consumers as to who they buy from and what they buy by making it easier to, to make the payment. Uh, that's no different than the than the value proposition of credit cards 60, 70 years ago. And what's funny is that the merchants now, 50, 60, 70 years later, can do only bitch and moan about the interchange rates on it, uh, but seem to be happy to pay the fees to the coroners and the firms of the world. So the challenge of the next couple of years is really going to be one of um, attribution. The, the buy now, pay later, firms are going to have to prove, you know, uh, Indubitably that their offering is what convinced the customer to, to make the purchase, make the payment, you know, and, and choose that product. So, um, you know, it's it's tough, but, you know, they're going to get past the regulators, whatever it is. And I think it's all fine to report it to the regulatory agencies, but the regulators need to create a fair and level playing ground, not play nanny.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's so much, I mean, so many Research sources point to buying up later is a uh, the the level of inflation that you get in basket size by using it, and as you say, Ron, the the friction being removed there for you know people feeling com- more confident, maybe overly confident in some instances in terms of people just buying the thing, you know, and and get that immediacy of, of kind of where we expect to, which you touched on as as well, Douglas. But I guess one thing's for sure, this is not going away, and we're definitely not going to be the last time we're going to be talking about it, but. We do have to move on, I'm afraid, at this stage, because there is a bunch of other stories we do need to get to. We want to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We'll be back with you shortly.
2: Full Circle is the customer lifecycle intelligence platform that's helping companies in financially regulated industries do better business faster. Financial institutions are under pressure on multiple fronts. Customers are demanding better experiences. Competitors are making a grab for market share. Regulatory scrutiny is fiercer than ever, and the cost to acquire and serve is high. Full Circle's new white paper explores how customer lifecycle intelligence can help companies find the right customers, accelerate onboarding, and keep them for life. Download it from the link in the podcast description.
0: Welcome back to the show. Let's get on with the next story. And next up, we have a story that was picked up by us over on AltFi, which is Canada's Wealthsimple becomes the latest fintech to cut staff. Toronto-based Wealthsimple has laid off 159 members of staff this week because of changes to market conditions. As it was quoted in saying, the digital wealth manager's co-founder and CEO Michael Katchen shared the news in a company-wide letter to employees following an all hands meeting in a medium post. Kachin outline what the shift means for the team, how it's planning to take care of its former employees, and what happens next. Along with the layoffs comes another shift from the business, which will be uh, laser-focused on its core cool business going forward. Kachin said he indicated a shift to investing, banking, and products that will power financial innovation, such as crypto, they were quoted to say. Uh, Douglas, what do you think on this one? Coming to you, obviously, uh, this being your uh, your home turf then, um, you know, ha- did, did you see this coming?
1: Yes, uh, because it's coming to every company in Canadian tech, uh, whether FinTech or otherwise. And I think when we shared out the story, which we were on pretty quickly, I think we were on this uh, we were getting tipped off to this about 15 minutes after <laughs> the news had been communicated to Well Simple staff that this was going to happen this is this happening to every company and maybe to put this in context this is this is a big deal within Canadian fintech well Simple is seen as kind of the the gold star of what a uh, financial services disruptor could look like. Uh, it has high pedigree in terms of the financial backing through uh power corp and the Demare family, which is like, I don't want to get into some Canadian history, but very wealthy people in Canada who do a lot of finance stuff. Um, but in by way of comparison, everyone's hemming and hawing because Wealth Simple cut 13% of its staff. Meanwhile, I think there was like 10 different companies that didn't make it across the border from the US to collision <laughs> because some of them are being <laughs> investigated by the FBI right now. So um 13% uh, cutback is relatively stayed across the sector, but there's some very specific reasons why it's happening to Wealth Simple. And I I think because uh, the what they've what they've seen to feel their growth in in both um, the stonks market uh, as well as crypto has just completely slowed to a crawl. So you you would expect this.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting as well. I mean, Sim, the, these guys are not the only people coming out. And you know, I know we we sort of highlight it in the the title of this story. But you know, Klarna, Coinbase, Free Trade, Robinhood. I mean, they've all been sort of Cutting staff in that sense is this a just a sign of like a, a bit of a market shift or a readjustment given the the, uh, the 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 sort of shifts in the market that we're seeing?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think in one sense markets are adjusting. So you know, we saw those sky high market caps that you know growth businesses have kind of attained over the years. They're coming under scrutiny now. I feel, and when you couple that with things like what's going on externally in markets with inflation and um, even like the Ukraine war, for example, I think many investors are deciding that these, you know, really high market caps don't hold up. So not only is it coming under scrutiny, but we also have these external factors that have a play. So I think it's something we might expect in the short term. But then saying that you have, you know, massive behemoth like city um, announcing plans to hire 4000 tech workers globally. So I'd be really curious to see how this ends up in a few months
0: yeah, yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I wonder if uh, I wonder if those players from uh, you know people leaving Klarna and Coinbase would be up for going and working at Citibank in that sense, in terms of uh, what the, the things there maybe very different requirements from technology workers in that sense. But uh, Tago, what do you what do you think? Is this a sort of a just a rebalancing in the market, or do you think it's a, a broader sign of things to come?
4: I think the biggest difference between Citibank and the, all the other high growth tech companies are like high growth tech companies are hiring for the next phase of the company always thinking about the next 6-12 months and it's always changing and growing and then they realize that the company is not going to grow that fast in the next 12 months so that they realize they need to cut some uh, people off from the, from the company, but when you look at Citigroup, how much are they growing year year over year? So it's a more stable thing. So they're hiring 40,000 people for them is a pretty normal stuff, but the other guys are just like trying to adapt to the system. In my point of view, I'm coming from Turkey, working in the UK, but Turkey is always like going down and up and down and up. So we see that before. We know what's going to happen. We know what's happening. And I believe you need to act with more thinking a bit slower to understand what's happening in the near future and then showing it not only for the next phase of hiring, it's just not a good sign for your customers as well because they are reading the news, they are seeing that you are laying off people and that kind of stuff. So it's affecting not only for your internal companies, just like external sources as well.
1: Yeah, just to follow up on, if I can, speaking of Mike Kachin over the years, one of the things that he's been principally concerned about is this idea of trust, because he knows, particularly in the Canadian market, uh, Canadians have been trained over the years to not expect competition. And and while, David, to your point, they they might not trust their bank, they might not enjoy their banking providers here, but they trust them not to screw them over. This is uh, a direct blow, and it's coming at a time in which two things are happening— uh, you know, well Simple raised 750 million uh USD last year to put it at a 5 billion valuation. Uh, but the deal valued them at like 52% of their assets under management, which is crazy high. They were at like 9.7 billion at that time. And this was the the run-up to them prepping for IPO. Um, in I think collision 2019, Katchen told me that uh he was targeting like a 20 million uh AUA and they uh, just under that um, right now, or sorry, twenty billion AUA, and they're they're just under that right now. We've seen stories of so many uh, Shopify employees jumping ship uh, from a variety of other tech giants to go to Well Simple in anticipation of an IPO, and this has uh, completely put it on pause because the what's been fueling their growth like they've been running uh, so many crypto ads on so you can't watch canadian television anything without seeing a wealth simple crypto ad and um similar to the the brex news like the growth markets for these fintech companies are are being impacted by the downturn and it's moving upstream so this this puts a, a pretty large pause on the shining star of canadian fintechs plans to Achieve that escape velocity and truly compete with the incumbents here.
0: Do do you think it? Do you think it does that? Because I, and, and again, not. Um, I don't know enough about it. But having seen a lot of companies who uh, sort of preen ahead of something like an IPO or preen ahead of something like a sale, it doesn't take much from an operational cost perspective to change the the ratios of your business across the board. So you know, there's potentially looking at it from another perspective, it might be them. Um, getting operational efficiency across the organization to make the finances look in a, a, a very good way in order to ipo at the level that they would want to because cooking of the books is not a is not a, a legal accusation in any way shape shape or form but is this just making operational efficiencies ahead of scaling um, the other angle on that potentially might be as well is like look if they do need to raise higher then getting the the mechanisms across the entirety of the business even the you know revenue per head which are mechanisms that, uh, you know, investors would look at in terms of, you know, the ratios they'd want to see. You don't have to drop too many people too quickly to to kind of make those ratios look a lot more attractive from an investor perspective. But that might be me being slightly naive to the market.
1: No, it's a, it's a great point. And, you know, I would say we would consider 13% staff reduction at the low end of where it starts to be slightly more than a t- typical business consideration. But you have to put this in the framing of what Welsum's been doing over the last two years. Um, they sold their UK book of business. They sold their US book of business. In uh, related to this announcement, they are trying to... They keep, they keep talking about focus, and the focus keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller, uh, both geographically in terms of the services they offer, to the point where uh, last December we were kind of predicting that they were going to, uh, with the um, them moving out of the UK market, transition to a, a Canadian super app. Uh, the idea being the aspirations for a Canadian fintech company to get out of the Canadian market and be internationally feasible looked a lot less appealing than them just owning a significant chunk of the Canadian market and being the digital bank for a whole generation. But that, that window keeps narrowing of what their focus is on. And what's been fueling tons of customer acquisition is, is like when there's the stock market or cryptocurrency, is like currently, uh, uh, I don't know, is the death spiral the right word? I'm not sure if that uh, translates geographically everywhere. But uh, at, at a certain point, they might be in a situation where they're narrowing their focus so much that it will impede their capacity to achieve that escape velocity, and which is incredibly difficult at a time in which, um, for years, they've been seen as, um, you know, a company that was ignored and then mocked by incumbents, and are now at the the crest of the target that they had set for themselves to truly compete against traditional Canadian banks, and and now this is happening. So I, I think I what happens to wealth simple in the next year will be very instructive of what's going on in the canadian fintech market as a whole
0: yeah i mean back to your point around uh, Brex, you know when uh, you know th- this isn't just a sign for one company but it might be a, an impact for for many i mean Ron, Ron, what do you think what's the what what would you put your money on in the, in terms of this uh, this meaning for for wealth simple is it a uh, you know, debt spiral is probably quite a dramatic sense in the. Uh, maybe that means something different in the UK than it does uh, in the Canadian market. But uh, I,
1: to note, I meant I meant in terms of crypto and the current state of the market, right. not well simple as a company. Good. I, I will get. Say. I will get. I will get emails <laughs> about that if <laughs> to not clarify. Good, uh, Ron. What do you think?
3: I think it kind of represents a return to sanity slash reality. Um, uh, I had made a comment on Twitter, I guess a couple of years ago already. At this point. Um, making a comment that I said, uh VCs' valuations weren't, quote, real valuations. Uh, and I had a software company founder, bank technology vendor, not really a startup fintech, um, and he just lit into me, man. He just told me, oh, what are you talking about? You're totally wrong. Of course those are real valuations. And I'm like, no, because it represents their expectations and hopes that if they can build up the cause, and I think, This is what's fueled the valuations. And, I mean, here in the U.S., I look at Chime, and I'm like shaking my head for years. I don't care that they've got 15 million customers. They've got 15 million low- to middle-income consumers, customers who don't spend a lot of money, aren't good credit risks. Where are you going to make the money? And I think what we have finally hit here in 2022 is, oh, you have to make some money. You have to be profitable. And so at some point I think or at this point I think we're at a stage where the the founders are getting it. I don't think it's strictly all operational improvement but it, it is somewhat a recognition that okay, we've been burning cash like like it's going like it, it's going to keep flowing off of trees and it's not. So we've got a plan for that. Whether it's to bolster the valuation, I really think in many of the cases that's almost a secondary consideration. I think it's you know, more, all right, we've got to start generating revenue. That's why I think Brex's decision was a very smart decision and I think very prudent. Um, and I also would expect not only will we continue to see a bunch of layoffs, I think for a lot of fintechs, we're going to start to see the um, the maturization of the management team. And I think the original founders are going to, going to get pushed out by the VCs and we're going to start to see more of the professional managers come in and I think we're at that stage with a lot of fintech companies.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, whatever we think that happens in the market and like we've got different opinions on on the show, it's like uh, a lot of people are losing their jobs and that's not a good place to be for, for kind of anybody in that market. But uh, So hopefully uh, anybody who has been affected by these things 11FS is hiring, just in case you're interested, like just to, just to put it out there. Uh, lots of jobs going, lots of things to do, so uh, feel free to apply on 11FS.com. All right, we better move on. Uh, there is a super weird story, I'm not going to lie on this one, where, uh, I mean, having worked at a bank, uh, this would freak me out if the, the, I was uh, asked to do this, but a story that was over on the Telegraph, which is, Deutsche Bank staff forced to install app that tracks messages. Uh, bankers at Germany's largest lender are being made to install an app that tracks communications on their phones. This comes as regulators clamp down on messaging between bankers and clients on platforms like WhatsApp. In the past several weeks, Deutsche Bank has told some employees to download Movius, a US mobile app that enables compliance staff to monitor people's calls, text messages, and WhatsApp conversations, according to the Financial Times. The rollout has been focused on work phones and not private devices, the monitoring push comes from uh, comes as regulators around the world become increasingly focused on bankers' use of messaging apps. Last year, J.P. Morgan Chase was fined 200 million dollars by U.S. regulators for failing to keep records of stark communications on personal devices. Um, Sim, what do you reckon? uh, If 11FS was like, hey, install this thing and we want to monitor WhatsApp on your phone, pretty sure you'd tell me to bugger off pretty quickly. But um, what what do you (laughs) think to this one?
2: I think so in the context of the story, I think it, you know, I think it makes sense because the caveat here is that it's on a work device. So like you have a work laptop, you wouldn't expect to do anything on your work laptop that you you would do on your personal laptop, for example. Banks especially have those regulations and policies in place. So I think that makes sense. I think The line is crossed when it's on a private device, for sure, when it's a personal device. Then I'm getting like 1984 vibes. Um, You know, I don't even think, you know, companies would be interested in and what people are saying. Well, actually, they might be, (laughs) depending on how bored they are. But I don't think, I think it's a work, it's a work device. It makes sense. It's like a work laptop. What does everyone else think?
0: Yeah, I guess, Ron, this this one feels like it's like, actually, the problem here isn't that I'm putting something on your device to monitor you, it's the problem is that the businesses haven't established a good enough way to communicate with the customers. So employees haven't used WhatsApp, like that's not the, surely that's not the default communication method you should be talking to, you know, high-end wealth clients on, you know?
3: Well, the other problem too here is, uh, it's just, it's not a realistic expectation Okay, so you, you put this, this device, this uh, app on your, on your work device, and then you go to, you you talk to clients on your personal device. It isn't going to stop it. And then even if you did that and they somehow forced the employees to put it on their personal devices, fine, I'll just use my iPad or even with every step of the way, whatever technology you introduce to do one thing. Somebody's going to introduce technology to do the other. So what was this thing called, Movius or something?
0: Yeah, Movius.
3: Okay, so, yeah, within 3 weeks someone will will develop anti-Movius, an app you put on your phone that negates all the stuff that Movius does or fakes it out and, you know, it's you understand why they're trying to do it because there are regulations around it. But the enforceability of this is just simply not realistic.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, it's for Deutsche Bank, they have to respond. They have to do something. But I think it's it's the wrong it's the solution to the wrong problem, isn't it? The the problem's further upstream in that sense in terms of what they need to do. But uh, but it is a it is a strange one, isn't it? I mean, you sort of try and talk to customers in the way that they want to be talked to in the channels that they want to be talked to. But but yeah, maybe WhatsApp's I'm just not sure it's the the right place to be in that sense. But uh, um, well, there's a bunch of other stories we are going to have to run through super super quickly just because um, the first few ones we went really long on. So I am going to kind of jump into the next ones. So. We're gonna try and jump through these as, as quickly as we can, right? Are you uh you all set to uh to jump through the hoops a little bit?
2: Yeah, definitely. I'll I'll start. So, uh, Stripe is launching a new bank transfer proposition in the UK and other markets, which it says will erase the operational pain of receiving and manually reconciling transfers for businesses. Bank transfers, which have been in existence since 1871 when Western Union added money transfers to its telegram service, are still one of the most common ways to spend money today. And... The current process, says Stripe, is filled with friction, pointing to businesses losing hundreds of hours on confirming transfers, reconciliation and accounting and refunds. But Stripe's new offering, which has already been launched in Japan, is now being rolled out in the EU, in the UK, in Mexico. And fundamentally, what it does is it automates all reconciliation and says it creates a simplified refund process. I think it's pretty cool. I think anything that enhances the end customer experience is going to be... Make it easier for them. Make life easier for them. And I think Stripe also said that it'll bring the infrastructure to the US at a later date. So that'll be interesting.
0: Super, super interesting. Interesting to see what happens with that. Uh, so. Really interesting story next. Uh, Covered over in the Telegraph, the phony fintech revolution is eating itself. So Telegraph columnist, I don't know why I struggle with saying that word, Matthew Lin has written a op-ed criticizing the phony fintech revolution. Using Klarna's recent valuation drop as a starting point, Lin writes, the peer-to-peer lenders have shuffled off the scene, zero fee traders such as Robinhood are laying off staff, and the challenger challenger banks have noticeably failed to challenge anything very much except for their shareholders. It continues in truth. A lot of the hype around fintech revolution has turned out to be completely bogus. This is uh, very little in the new world of finance, and apart from speeding transfers up, uh, it is hard to see how the internet changes it in any significant way at all. Klarna will burst the Fin bubble, and rightly so. Do you know what? There's some truth in what what he said here in terms of the, and there's a lot of kind of bravado in it and, you know, whatnot in that sense, but there is some truth in terms of actually how much really has changed in, in the space. Um, I think I, I will reach out to, to Matthew Lynn to have more of a, a long debate about this one and, and get him onto the to, to a show to kind of talk about it. Because even whether the the likes of the Klarnas and the Monzos and the Chimes and the Varos, are they really fundamentally changing the world of financial services in themselves? I think the competition in the marketplace is definitely changing what financial services is as an entirety. And I don't think fintech in its own sense is, is changing the industry, but technology players, fintech players, everything is... Is really bettering the outcome when it comes to, to to consumers, but but I think it would be quite fun to get Matt on and uh, have a chat about it. So I'll, I'll I will reach out after the show. Over to you, Sim.
2: Irish banks get green light for payments app. So a payments app developed by Ireland's high street banks to compete with the likes of Revolut has been given the all clear by the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. The money transfer app called sounds really weird to say, was developed by a joint venture set up by AIB, Bank of Ireland, KBC, Ireland and Permanent TSB. They pumped several million euros into the project and the partners saw their original submission to the CCPC rejected in January 2021 for a lack of detail. The CCPC has now cleared the venture after Cinch set out objective Eligibility criteria for any banks or other financial institutions that wish to become participants in the service. We previously spoke about this app back on episode 584 of FinTech Insider News, in which David Cunningham, the chief commercial officer at Lex2Go, gave a less than glowing review to Eleven FS's Benjamin Enzo.
5: In summary, people don't have a lot of confidence that this will be a game changer for FinTech in Ireland. And uh I, I was going to lead with this kind of story that when that you know, I'm almost embarrassed and, and I'll finish with it said Like, like I'm kind of a, I, I am embarrassed seeing that this is what they're trying to do at this stage in 2021, that this is the best shot they have. It's kind of in Dublin, they have this expression where they're embarrassed for you. They say uh, I'm scarlet for your ma. So uh, I'm red faced for your mother, you know, because she must be embarrassed as to what you're doing. So like I'm kind of scarlet for your ma here, Banks. So, so, would it be fair to summarise that, that you're not a huge fan of this? Deeper, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> deeper. I'm Scarlett for Yama. That's an, a new term, Sim. I've never heard that one before.
2: I know he's clearly not a fan. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I'm not sure how much of the market they're going to change with a mobile payment service. Um, but maybe the app could be really good for consumers. We'll have to wait and find out. I think.
0: Let's wait and see. All right. Well, that uh, wraps up most of the news, but there is the uh, the last story of the show, as there always is. And this uh, one is an interesting one over on Upworthy. Internet Explorer is being hilariously serenaded after 27 long years of browsing history. Microsoft announced in 2021 that Internet Explorer would cease to exist on June 15th, 2022, and it stuck to its word. Uh, Microsoft introduced Windows users to Internet Explorer way back in 1995 as the alternative to Netscape Navigator, which it went on to replace. Microsoft's announcements read the Internet Explorer 11 desktop application will be retired and go out of support on June 15th, 2022 uh, for certain versions of Windows 10. Many people have taken to the Internet to share their feelings about this. Uh, One Twitter user wrote, Internet Explorer is finally shutting down on June 15th after 27 years. Seems it's lagging a bit. I clicked close about 26 years ago, which uh, I think uh, quite a few people uh, potentially did. Another wrote, not Internet Explorer joining the 27 Club. And finally, a South Korean software developer even had a gravestone built to mark the Internet Explorer's demising date, which is uh, pretty impressive. A level of expense to go in for. I'm not sure if they just photoshop that or whether it's actually real but uh, do you know what? i once spent about three months of my life trying to get internet banking at lloyd's banking group working in internet explorer six it was the bane of my absolute life in terms <laughs> of uh, making those things happen but anybody actually use it in internet explorer right now anybody really worried about this one leaving is it is it sort of a can we really get nostalgic about old tech should we be doing that or is progress actually a good thing in that sense
3: I thought Microsoft killed Internet Explorer back in 2003. I I must be really behind the times. I didn't realize it's been a long, around for the past 19 years.
0: Yeah, the the iterations have not not caught on over there in the uh, the Shavlin household
1: clearly in terms of Internet Explorer, but D- Douglas, are you are you going to miss it. Uh no, I got off Internet as someone when you said way back in 1995, I felt a sting in my heart because I remember using uh Netscape prior to that. Uh I got off Internet Explorer the minute there was a viable Alternative, And uh, I think it should be killed as much as it can be killed, because it's only a tool now for botnet attacks and other security vulnerabilities. So uh, maybe the uh, nostalgia might be a little bit different if we were a panel of uh, hackers, or people who uh, frequent in, uh, DDS attacks, but uh, you can be nostalgic for tech, but it shouldn't be Internet Explorer. So what's everybody's browser of choice? Because I, I get hell of grief in the 11FS office for
0: using Safari. Like everybody's like, you can't do anything. Like I'm an old man just because I use Safari. But Sim, what's your uh, what's your browser of choice?
2: And mine's Chrome all the way. Diehard right. Chrome fan.
0: Okay. Tiger, what's your what's your browser of choice?
4: 99% Chrome, 1% for Barclays online bank Safari because they were not supporting it, so.
0: See it's those banks so i wonder uh, on a on a serious note, I wonder if there is going to be a lot of internal systems uh, organizations that actually they cannot justify spending the amount of money it will take to support modern-day browsers on. Like, there's probably going to be... Can you remember, like, when we um, there was things being turned off in uh, uh, various different versions of, of Windows where ATMs suddenly wouldn't be functioning in certain ways because they were being supported in that way? I wonder if there's going to be, like, a bunch of intranet websites that just cease to exist in this sense, which is probably not a bad
1: thing, given where we are in 2022. But uh, just, to, just to note, another Canadian publication recently ran a story noting that, like Quebec's health records, are currently only accessible via Internet Explorer. So there are some secondary owner effects um, to this, but I, I don't think that's Internet Explorer's fault. It's
0: like, it's like Y2K all over again, but we're doing it to ourselves, aren't we? But uh, uh, right, on that note, we better leave you. If you are missing Internet Explorer, we do condolences to everybody in your household for probably more than reasons than uh, than just that at that stage. But uh, this wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much for today's guest for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about you? Sim, starting with you. You
2: can find me on LinkedIn, um, SimRai, and at sim.rai at 11fs.com.
3: Very good. Ron, where can people learn more? LinkedIn, Ron Shevlin, or the uh, fintech snark tank on Forbes. Very good.
4: Tiger? Same. If you can pronounce my surname, you can find me on LinkedIn, <laughs> or you can check from Twitter as well.
0: It's in the show notes. Feel free, everybody, to uh, to, to get in touch and
1: uh, tell me I did a bad job on that one. Uh, Douglas, where can people find more from you? Uh, you can find my team's work, our fintech coverage, on betakit.com, and you can find me being more or less the same uh, at Tron on Twitter very good and good luck with the uh, the hangover
0: hope it progresses well uh as for me you can find me over on linkedin predominantly these days thank you so much for listening in if you want to join in with the conversation you can find us pretty much on social media and every channel that you can think of or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com thank you very much
1: for listening everybody goodbye